Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. I just thank you for your spirit that is here with us, guiding us. Father, may our minds be open, our ears attentive. May we hear what you have for us this morning with open hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the last couple days, our family was able to join with some family friends. Uh, We got together and we've celebrated Thanksgiving uh, with with these family friends probably more than with anybody else uh, over our years. And we've always uh, talked about finding some little remote cabin by one of the mountains or on one of the coasts and and just kind of disconnecting with with our normal routine. And up until this year, we'd always just gone ahead and done the same old thing. <clears throat> so we got together and, and we found this little cabin down by Mount Hood and we thought that'd be kind of fun to go down and find some snow to play in and and just get away and and relax. So, you know, in the advertisement for the cabin, you know, it says that they have a coffee pot. <clears throat> Check, I'm good to go. All we need to bring is filters and the beans and a grinder. And so we had those things on our list, and we got there uh, Wednesday evening and had a good, good night, and so... Th- Thursday morning, Thanksgiving morning, I wake up and I'm like, I'm, I'm the first one up and I can make a pot of coffee, just relax a little bit, read a book, think about Sunday. And I, I got the coffee pot all set up, the filters in it, the beans are ground, you know, the perfect blend. I got the water in it and I turned it on and I I went back and I sat down and I started reading it and, and it was making all the sounds that the coffee pot is supposed to make, the, the water's being sucked up through the little tube, that's what it sounds like. And so about 10 minutes later I go back out and I am just ready for a cup of coffee and it didn't pull any of the water through, the coffee pot was broken. What do you do? You're at a remote place and there's no coffee pot. Well, you could either give up on coffee, but that's not in my genetic makeup. (laughs) Or you could have a coffee advent. And you can circumvent the situation and figure out, how am I going to get a cup of coffee out here in this remote place? Well, there was a stove. So I started to boil water. And ladleful by ladleful, I poured it over those beans and into that coffee pot. It was, it was uh, wait for it, wait for it. It's coming. I know it's there. I can smell it. But it took a long time to get to it. And I had to kind of participate in this advent of the coffee See, we're leading up to Christmas. That's a light-hearted story that illustrates what we're doing between now and Christmas Eve when Jesus arrives. We know what's coming, right? We celebrate it in cyclical fashion. Every year, 
Christmas Eve happens. My favorite phone call at one of my previous churches on a, on a Christmas Eve, it was snowing and we had to cancel Christmas Eve service. Phone call, it's a good thing that I didn't pick up the phone because something might have just blew out of my mouth that I would have regretted. <clears throat> Our secretary picked up the phone and the question was, are you going to reschedule that Christmas Eve service? Now, she did very well. She said, you know, we're, we're just calling it off for this year, and our next service is at such and such a time. I probably would have said, yes, it's already been rescheduled for next year. <clears throat> it just keeps coming. Every year we celebrate this. We go through Advent, which starts, you know, uh, roughly the beginning of December, and it leads us all the way up until Christmas Eve until we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Every year, it comes around on the calendar. But it, it takes some intentionality to slow down and wait for it. Even though we know it's coming, it takes discipline to slow down and really ponder and think about why we are doing this in the first place. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. As we enter into this season of anticipation, this season of waiting for the arrival of the Christ child, I have a question for you. And the question is, does Christmas still amaze you? Does it? Knowing that it comes up every year, knowing all the hustle and bustle that we have to go through to get there, does Christmas still amaze you? Or does it just wear you out? If Christmas has kind of grown stale, if Christmas, if this whole season just takes a, a toll on you and, and, and wipes you out with too much to do and too little time to do it, I want, I want these weeks to remind us of the unexpected and amazing nature of God's arrival among us. I know it's really easy to buckle under the stress and the pressure of a season like this, but I want you to slow down. I want you to take some steps back from the frenzy and ask yourself the question this year, does Christmas still amaze me? Would you stand as we Look at Matthew chapter 24. I know already at the outset you're wondering, why are, why are we this far into the gospel? And we'll get to that. But here's the text that's been given to us today. Matthew writes in verse 36, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left." Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, 
because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever gotten one of those unexpected gifts? I remember it was a birthday. It wasn't a Christmas. My grandparents had traveled up north to to visit us, and they came bearing gifts for my birthday, and I had published a list in advance. And so I had some expectations. And gifts from grandparents are always fun to receive, are they not? So I tear into this package, and it's, you know, about the size and shape of one of the things on my list. And so I'm thinking, yes, score. And I rip off the paper, and there's like three Hardy Boys novels. And I'm like, what is this? I didn't ask for this. This wasn't on my list. About that moment, the camera went click with my look of disdain, disgust, you know, kind of like a, oh, this is the biggest letdown of a birthday surprise ever, and it's caught on film. Thanks, Mom. But it's one of those things that's unexpected. We're, we're, we're thinking that we're going to get one thing and it's completely different. It's kind of like our text this morning. I wasn't ready for this text today. This is the definition of unexpected. See, we think that we're getting prepared for the baby Jesus and this is the, the first day of, of a new church year. The church year starts today. We're a month off from the calendar year. Advent 1 in the liturgical calendar, the church year is the first Sunday of the year, and we're getting ready for the baby Jesus. So this is really the first sermon in the new year. It's not the text that I would have chosen or or picked out or expected. And that's, that's the title of our series for Advent, is Unexpected. Today, the text is unexpected. Each week, as we look at the Christmas story, there are unexpected things that happen on the way to the birth of Christ. Things we just wouldn't imagine or dream up or pencil in if, if we were writing the script. But this is the script that we've been given. It's a little bit unexpected. I don't know if I'm ready for it. It's a text that just doesn't seem to fit the occasion. Mary and Joseph, well, they haven't even made any travel arrangements yet. There's tension between what we just read and where we collectively go with our imaginations. See, we think we want to be in one place, and Jesus takes us in the opposite direction. See, out there in the world, we're already to the fa-la-la-la-la and the figgy pudding. Yuck. 
Back on September 21st, I was walking through Costco, and I was assaulted by a Christmas-decorated Santa Claus, uh, snowman, section of decorations that you could buy. September 21st, really? Out there in society and in culture and in many of our homes and on the radio stations, we're all ready to Christmas. But this text, this doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's going in a completely different direction. I mean, we've gone through Gray Thursday and Black Friday and all the relentless madness of the marketing shopping season. All of the retailers out there trying to convince us that we need more stuff. They've already got baby Jesus in the manger and, and Santa Claus coming down the chimney. And Jesus is here. He, he, he's not thinking about that. Jesus is here. He's, he's talking about something that's way off in the future. Text, it just seems to be a little bit out of place. It's unexpected. I don't think the marketing department approved that we read this text today. They wouldn't be really happy about that. See, there's, there's no courier in Ives Prince. There's no baby Jesus in the manger. There's no fuzzy little sheep and the twinkling stars in the sky, this text is actually near the end of Jesus' ministry. We're supposed to be talking about something that's up front at the beginning. Jesus coming to the manger, Mary and Joseph wrapping the baby in swaddling clothes and, and placing him there in the manger. That's what we're imagining. Jesus, he's already spun this forward. This text is alarming. He, he, leading up to, to this story, he's, he's telling his disciples about the end times and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. This isn't peace on earth, goodwill towards men that we're thinking about here. Why, why are we talking about this right now? Why, why are we be, beginning at the, at the end of Matthew when Advent is a story about the preparation and the beginning? I'd say those are, those are pretty good questions to ask. See, we, we mark time through this season in many different ways. You've probably heard there's only 24 shopping days left until Christmas. We count it down, or we have the little cube calendars, or little things on the table where you can change the cubes every day so you know exactly how many days it is until Christmas. Or you have the Advent calendars with, with the little windows that you open one on each day, or, or even with our devotional that we're going through, we mark time by reading something diligently day after day after day and marking time that way. You could say that the Advent clock is ticking. We count it down to Christmas. See, time keeps passing by. Time keeps slipping away from us. And while this text seems like it's a little bit out of step with all of the, the Christmas season, Jesus in this text is telling his disciples about another Advent clock that is ticking. See, this text may seem a little bit out of place, but <laughs> this is one of those texts that really draws our attention. When we read that, we go, oh my, Jesus said that? We're going to go there on Christmas during Advent? Really? This is one of those texts that, that 
it's one of the difficult passages. It's a, it's a text that has very strong images. It's decisive. There is some finality to this text. We like to think we know about the end times. We, we like to talk about that day when sometime Jesus would return. And we like to have these pictures and images in our mind about what that's going to look like. We take bits and pieces of Scripture from here and there, and, and we piece together these pictures, trying to come up with what's it going to be like at the end. And here, here, Advent 1, Jesus is talking about the end already. There's salvation. There's judgment. Jesus talks about, remember back in the days of Noah? God had come to Noah and said, hey, I need to start over. I found you righteous. I want you to build me an ark. And he went through that. And Noah warned the people. But there they were, off living their own lives, no regard for God. And then it started raining. And it kept raining. And it rained some more. And then it started raining up from out of the deep people started to figure out they were in trouble. And a whole sinful generation was swept away. Noah's in the boat, carried to safety. I don't know if I'm expecting this kind of a message today. See, Jesus talks about two people in the field. One is taken, one is left behind. And he talks about two women who are at the mill. They're, they're grinding at the hand mill. One of them's taken. One of them's left behind. That's shocking. It's decisive. There's finality to this. So we get, to, we get into theological debates over this very text, and there's really no clear consensus among scholars on exactly what Jesus means here. See, popular theology promotes that that when one is taken and one is left behind, of course it's the believer who is taken. And the sinner is left behind to face judgment on their own. But that's not really what the text actually says. If you look carefully at it, it could just as likely mean that the sinner is swept away. Jesus has just used the analogy of the days of Noah. Who was swept away? The sinful generation was swept away. In other parts of, of our Bible, it talks about in the end times when a, a new heaven and a new earth come down. You can put imagery together in both ways. The point is, Jesus doesn't say who's taken and who's left behind. Jesus says one is taken, one is left. He's nonspecific. that's not really the point of the text. See, the, the, image, the imagery that we have here isn't, it's not directly tied to the identification of who's good and who's bad, and who's going to leave and who's going to be left behind. The, the primary purpose of the picture that we have in our text today is that there's going to be a sudden and there's going to be a surprising separation between the righteous and the unrighteous, period about awareness. 
See, we, we like this text because it gives us something to sensationalize. We like this text because it gives us something to speculate about. Uh, but I don't think that we're supposed to take these words of, of Jesus and, and try and fit them together in some sort of eschatological puzzle to try and figure out the exact timing of all the end-time events and put them in their exact order so that we can make some sort of prediction on when Jesus is going to come back and who the Antichrist is and when the rapture of the church is going to happen. That's not why this text is in the book. See, we, we like trying to figure that kind of stuff out gets our minds thinking. We're, we're people who are preoccupied with knowing stuff, right? We like knowledge of things. See, there's got to be a logical explanation for everything. We should be able to, to read our entire Bible and figure out the, the code that's in here, right? That's not why Jesus tells this story. See, many people have tried over the ages to figure out when the end times were going to happen. It's already been predicted multiple times. Guess what? Nobody's figured it out yet. We're all still here. Jesus hasn't returned yet. See, people have been trying to figure out when God's Messiah was going to show up for generations, for millennia. Even before Christ arrived, the people were waiting for God's Messiah. And when he showed up the first time, they didn't recognize him either. Here we are. We have this, these words of Jesus that he's just given us. Look at, look at verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. See, our Bible teaches us about the character of God. If Jesus doesn't know, then it's probably a clue that we're probably not going to know either. So I don't think that we need to obsess about stuff like that. There's lots of stuff that we don't know, right? In the days, I call them the days B.C., you've heard of B.C., before cell phones, um, my sister and I would stand out in our front yard and look up and down the street. Grandma and Papa were supposed to be arriving. We knew the day they were supposed to arrive. They had about an eight-hour drive to get there. And who knows when they would have gotten up. They, they were crack-of-dawn kind of folk. And so if the car was loaded the night before, then, hey, they might be on the road by 5 and could, you know, get to our house by 3. Or maybe they savored their cup of coffee just a little bit longer and didn't leave until 8, and so then it was a little bit later. So that window of time in the afternoon, there was a lot of expectation. We had, we had the sense that something was going to come, that they were going to arrive, and, and it was exciting. And we would stand out there in the front yard and watch for them. But we didn't know exactly when they were going to arrive. Were they going to come up McClellan or were they going to come down Cleveland? So we had to keep our eyes peeled. 
There's stuff we don't know. Even when we think we know, there's still stuff that's unexpected. Birth falls into that category. Nine months of, of waiting. Nine months. And then the moment happens, and it's unexpected. Death is another one. You can be on a death watch knowing that it's going to happen, but it's always a surprise. It's always unexpected with the last breath. There's just stuff that we don't know, things that are unexpected. In that verse 36, though, I don't think... I don't think knowing is the most surprising thing there. It's a bit shocking for me to hear that Jesus doesn't know. Did you read that? Jesus doesn't know. That's shocking. Some of the Greek manuscripts of, of Matthew, uh, the scribes, well, when, when they were when they were writing out the, the gospel and, and copying it over, and they got to that phrase right there in verse 36, but about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, comma, nor the Son, comma. Well, that was a little bit shocking. We can't write that. Matthew has just said that Jesus doesn't know something. He's God, right? Shouldn't he know everything? Or right here, Matthew 24, 36, says, not even the Son knows the return. Some of the scribes, they just left it out, gone, erased. I don't know. You see that in society. You get the, this is one way to say I don't know, the shrug of the shoulders. Or you get the grunt, oh, you ask a question, many teens, I'm not trying to pick on you, oh, you're supposed to know things, right? If you don't know something, don't make up an answer, has always been my motto. Go ahead and just admit it, I don't know. But that's really hard. That's a really hard thing to say when we are supposed to know the information. If we're supposed to know something and somebody asks us a question about it and we don't know, saying I don't know is really hard to do. It's kind of a, it's a painful admission of our limited knowledge and we don't tend to like that. What's even more disconcerting is when we go to people who are supposed to know and we ask them a question and they come back with, I don't know. When you go to the doctor and you've had some tests done and you're waiting for the diagnosis and you're wondering what is going to happen, what is wrong with me, why am I feeling like this? And the doctor says, I don't know. I can't figure it out. That's a little disconcerting, right? I don't know is something really difficult to say. As a pastor, I get lots of questions. It's hard to say, I don't know. 
Why is this bad stuff happening to me? I don't know. Why did this happen? Uh, I don't know. What does it mean? Uh, I don't know. Why doesn't he love me anymore? I don't know. That's hard to say, isn't it? When you're supposed to know the answer and all you can muster is, I don't know. It's a little bit shocking for us to hear Jesus say, I don't know. And Jesus doesn't shy away from difficult questions in our Scripture. He faces head-on a lot of questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and his disciples and the crowds bring to them. And every one he answers, but this one in particular, he says, I don't know. It's not for us to know. Angels don't know. I don't know. Only God knows. See, we're, we're talking about Advent, the arrival of God in our midst, and, and we look around at this world and, and we see all sorts of trouble and hatred and greed and gluttony, and we, we might wonder, when is God coming? When are things going to be set right? When is this healing supposed to happen? When is there going to be peace on earth? Tell us, Jesus, when is it going to happen? And Jesus says, I don't know. Only the Father knows that. See, our, our faith doesn't bring every single detail into focus. We live with uncertainties. Jesus doesn't expect us to have everything all figured out. We don't have to know everything but he expects us to do something. See, Jesus says the day is coming. The Advent clock is ticking. How do you live your life when you don't know? Jesus says, I, I don't know when, I don't know how, but Jesus says it's going to happen. Don't, your, don't concern yourself with trying to figure all of it out. It's a waste of time. Remember Y2K? There's a lot of people that have basements full of spam because they miscalculated. Some of you said amen to that, I know. God is going to come back. God will come. If you think you're out there and alone in the world, if you, if you think that there's nobody out there or that God doesn't hear you when you throw up your anguished cries or that he doesn't care, that he's too busy and far and aloof and out there, if you think that he's just an aloof God who doesn't care what's going on in our lives, then, then you're worshiping a different God than the one that Jesus knows. See, the Christian message is that God comes to us and that God will keep coming to us. That's the very nature of God. That's why we keep Advent. God comes to people. He arrives. He shows up. People testify to this. When they're down and out, one of my friends who, who I've gotten to know, he, he had an experience where, where he was just strung out on drugs and he had hit rock bottom. 
And one day he cried out and he said, God, if you're real, you're going to need to prove yourself and show yourself to me. Through a series of circumstances, he did. God makes his presence known to us. See, God doesn't always come in ways that are obvious and overwhelming to everybody. We're drawn to a text like we have in front of us today because it's sensational and it's dramatic. We look for God in the the grandiose and the exciting and the sensational ways, but the amazing thing is that, that God keeps coming to us in the very ordinary details of our lives. He comes in our pain and in our relationships, and in our fear, and in our doubt, and in our work, God will show up anywhere and invite you into relationship with Him. He knocks, and the question is, will we receive Him? See, God's invitation is persistent. It keeps coming to us. He is relentless. He invites us into relationship. He is relentlessly persistent in trying to get us into relationship with Him. He keeps knocking on the door. I'm here. Will you respond? We're the ones who are tasked with the responsibility of opening the door. See, God is there knocking, waiting for an answer. See, God is more persistent than we are. If somebody tells us no, and we ask again, and they say no, and we ask again, and they say no, eventually we're going to give up and move on, not God. He's out there beckoning us into relationship with him. He is persistent. But it takes a long time sometimes to get through to us because we're preoccupied with ourselves. We're preoccupied with our stuff. We're preoccupied because we think that we can run our life on our own just fine. God keeps knocking. There's urgency with God's call. He's not just persistent, but it's urgent. The time is coming, says Jesus, when I will return. It'll be a joyful day for some, and it'll be a terror for other people. I don't know when, I don't know how, but it's going to happen. There's going to be a day when the righteous and the faithful are rewarded, and the unrepentant will be swept away to final judgment. There's no middle ground there. God's invitation is always there. It's persistent and it's urgent. Two were in the field, one was taken, one was left behind. There's no middle ground. There's no putting it off for tomorrow. There is no snooze button on the advent clock. Persistent, urgent. Jesus says you've got to be ready. Don't become complacent. Don't become lethargic because you don't know the timing. Be prepared. Don't worry about the timing. And as you wait, pay attention. Verse 32, or 42, excuse me. He says, uh, Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Then he gives a little illustration. If the owner of her house had received a note from the burglar that said, I'm going to show up and rob your house at 1.15 in the morning, the homeowner would be ready. The homeowner would be on the lookout at 1.15. But we don't have a note 
Jesus says, in the absence of a note, you might as well pay attention now. Be watchful. Keep watch. Stand guard. Then he says the same thing essentially in verse 44. So you must also be ready. Now that's a different word there from watch. Be on the watch and be ready. It's two different things that mean somewhat of the same thing, but the one that says be ready is take an active part in it. The ancient root word of, of, for be ready right there is, is something like fitness, discipline, getting your body prepared. Be on the watch, be on the lookout, and be ready all at the same time. See, when we say that we believe that Jesus will return someday to gather up and redeem all of the brokenness and all of the loose ends of the world and, and of our lives, it is to mean right now that our lives have a purpose and our lives have a direction. As Tom Long puts it, he says, if the dam 20 minutes upstream breaks, then the Rembrandt on the wall is less valuable than the raft in the attic. See, knowing what lies ahead clarifies what to value and what not to value. The, the world is doing a good job of convincing us that what we need to value is all of our stuff. Your job teaches you to value the bottom line of the company. Jesus says the end of all things is coming. It's out there. I will return. Some will be left. Some will be taken. The righteous to reward, the unrepentant to final judgment. The end is coming. What do you value? And what does that look like? Over in 25, chapter 25, Jesus closes out this whole teaching section. Verse 34 gives them a picture of what this looks like. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It's the business of the kingdom that Jesus is telling us to get after. To watch and to be ready means to care for other people. Know that it's coming Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things will be added unto you. Well, the righteousness that Jesus is talking about is illustrated right there in chapter 25. It's caring for the least, the lost, the lonely. So go ahead. Live in the present Make the phone call to reconcile that relationship. Seek a counselor if you need some help. Get help for that addiction. Make a stand for Christ. Share your faith with somebody. 
Love somebody. Give yourself away, says Jesus, as a means of living prepared. Then you don't need to worry. Then you don't need to speculate. See, Advent buckles us in to the present. Advent is the G-force that puts us back in our seat when we take off. Advent keeps us right here in the moment because we know how the story ends and we can live expectedly. We can live on alert, on watch, and we can be prepared. See, the Advent clock is ticking. Sounds kind of ominous if you ask me. It's actually good news. It's really, really good news. Jesus says the day will come. God's word will be fulfilled. So I encourage you to live into the Advent hope. It's your hope. As we travel through these weeks of Advent, preparing for the incarnation of Christ in a few weeks, he comes in a rather unexpected and unfathomable way. The Creator God's arrival among us isn't how we would expect it. Now you pause and find amazement in this reality of Christmas. Amen. Amen. Would you stand for prayer? just going to close with a time of prayer. No music, no song. Time of quiet reflection as we enter into Advent. It's not, it's not the easiest time of year for all of us. I know that. Hectic, busy, frenzy. Maybe there's a bad memory associated with Christmas. I, I don't know what it is. But, but I do know what the words of Jesus are for us today. And while they may be a little bit shocking and, and unexpected, text may not fit into what you thought you would hear this morning. That, that's okay. I just know that, that the Holy Spirit is here and working.